0: Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by The Mosaic Company. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Cistera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SesteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. Pennsylvania no-tiller Jim Hershey ditched the plow more than three decades ago to economize on labor and equipment, and has never regretted it. Always interested in researching and learning about new ideas to push his operation to the next level, Hershey implements a lot of side-by-side trials on his farm to verify the results of his experiments. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lessiter talks with Hershey about some of the practices that have put him on a successful no-till path. Join us as they talk about how planting shorter season hybrids and varieties helps spread risk, why he likes planting soybeans before corn, how he transitioned to planting green into cover crops, how cover crops have boosted his soil biology, and much more.
1: did you grow up around the area you're farming in now or someplace else
2: relatively the same area we were lancaster county natives i grew up in the county we've been here at our present location now for 43 years so have wow. been here a long time
1: you grow up on a farm?
2: Grew up on a dairy farm. Yeah, so yep. did
1: I. And I decided milking cows and lugging hay bales, I wanted to do <laughs> something else.
2: <laughs> well, I did that, yeah, as a little boy on up. Uh, first 10 years of our married life, we were continued to be dairy farmers. And then at that point in time, we decided that it was a lot of hard work and wanted to do something different. Then we got into raising broiler chickens. Right.
1: So, how many acres are you farming?
2: We're farming approximately 500 acres. We also have a custom crop management service that covers another 1,500 acres. Okay.
1: At one time, you had some land in Ohio. Are you still doing that or not?
2: Not as much as we had at one time, but we still have about 400 acres that we manage out there. Okay.
1: When did you first get uh, interested in no-till?
2: Got interested in no-till probably about 35, 37 years ago. That was when we were still milking cows and labor was an issue and decided that we were going to try and cut back on some of the time and equipment that we needed to farm or to raise a crop of corn and soybeans. And so we actually started, our first experience was no-tilling corn in to soybean stubble. Mm-hmm. How did it go that first year? Well, <laughs> it could have been worse, but it was a learning experience because my planning equipment was not equipped or designed to do an adequate job. And so that's why it wasn't long, I guess, two years after that, then I upgraded corn planters, got row cleaners and some no-till coulters and things like that on a planter that I could do that. But everyone told me They expect a yield drop the first three years is going to be a big challenge, but honestly, I can say that I don't know that I really experienced that in any significant way, not like some fellows might have.
1: Well, it's like back in the 70s, people told me, well, if I no till I'm going to have to plow every four or five years to control. And I used to say to them, well, give it a try. If you end up having to plow, then you end up having to plow. (laughs) Well, most of those people never plowed. Never plowed. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and then the old adage was, well, if you're not going to be plowing, then you're going to have to be using more herbicide. But boy, have we learned so much in the last years to find out that we don't have to use as much herbicide
1: right so what crops are you growing corn soybeans and wheat okay is it a three-year rotation or longer than that
2: it is pretty much a three-year rotation if we raise corn the next year it'll be a full season crop of soybeans take the beans off in the fall and plant a crop of wheat and then the next year the wheat comes off we double crop a a crop of soybeans on that wheat stubble and then we're back in the corn the next year so yeah basically three year
1: so, I went back and pulled a couple of articles we had done in No-Till Farmer about you and
2: mm-hmm. one of the things
1: you're talking about was using different maturity corn and soybeans, using a shorter season corn.
2: We still are using a shorter season variety, mostly to just get a jump start on harvest. We have found with a new hybrids that are now available in the market that some of these 105 day corn, 103 day corn maturities can yield right up with 110 day, providing you have the right conditions. Now, soybeans, a similar story. We like to get started if we can harvesting soybeans the end of August and that's providing we can get started planting in April and plant like a two seven bean maturity nothing over a three to start out with it gives us a chance to get started and you spread your risk out depending on what the summer brings with the moisture sometimes some of the shorter season hybrids can get ahead of the hot summer heat
1: right so do you plant shorter season double crop varieties
2: you mean in the soybeans? Yeah, yeah. In the soybeans actually when we double cropping we will plant a longer season variety and the reason for that is to get height. If you plant a short season soybean in July, oftentimes it'll pod way too close to the ground. The plant'll be short and it'll make it difficult to harvest. Mm-hmm. We typically then go with like a three seven bean or a three nine bean, longer season variety, it'll give you more height to get the bean pods up off the ground. Actually, we did a side-by-side this year where we planted in July a 2.7 bean and right in the same field alongside of it, we planted a 3.7 bean. There was absolutely no difference in yield other than the only difference was that the plant height was taller in the 3.7 bean.
1: More beans in the bin.
2: We did. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So are you planting beans or corn first in the spring?
2: Well, it depends on a bit our ground conditions for that mm-hmm. designated field that we want to plant in. Some years we'll plant corn first. Oftentimes the last couple of years we got the bean planter and the corn planter going within a day of each mm-hmm. other. Good. If I had to choose which one to plant first, I would go with the beans. I think the beans can handle the cooler weather and the cooler ground conditions better than what the corn can.
1: we got a few people here in the Corn Belt who are trying the same thing. They realized mm-hmm. they can do better with planting soybeans first.
2: Corn just struggles more with cooler conditions in the spring.
1: Right. So mm-hmm. tell me a little about cover crops. When did you start using them?
2: We've been cover cropping for 15, 17 years now, probably. It mm-hmm. might be even 20. We started cover cropping out of probably big concern with erosion and capturing nutrients. It wasn't up until about probably six, eight years ago that we've got a lot of push from the Chesapeake Bay wanting us to really push cover crops. And then there was government programs that were out there that they would pay you to plant cover crops uh, so much per acre plus the cover crop cost and planting costs. And that really kicked things in high gear. But I really started planting rye. It was my first cover crop. And then when it got six, eight inches tall in the spring, I would go in and burn it off. And of course, now we've moved from that practice now to planting green, which we're probably gone on eight, nine years. Well, I would say seven years of extensive biomass cover crop, green crop. Prior to that, we were just planting green, but we wouldn't let it get more than six inches tall and then burn it off.
1: Yeah. So are you planting everything green?
2: Everything is planted green, corn and soybeans course not the wheat but the uh, corn soybeans we do
1: right so have you got a favorite cover crop mix you use or what
2: i've been back and forth seems like every year we try something different but i do try and get a cereal grain my preference still is to get a percentage of rye cereal rye in that and then i like to get some legumes in there some vetch, several types of clovers we did not this year, but we have in the past. We planted a pound or pound and a half of radish in. But if I had to have a favorite, you hear about these guys have 13, 14, sure. 17 way mixes. And I have really cut back my rates also of cover crop because of our planting green. We actually have delayed planting in the spring already to try and build up more biomass. There's many guys that think, well, well, you need to in order to get the job done you have to plant 50 60 pounds and I found with the program that we're in this planting green we can get away with 40 pounds or 45 pounds keep our costs down and still get equal benefit out of it in the spring mm-hmm.
1: so how much do you like to let this grow you said early on you started with six inches I assume you're taller than that now or can you get too tall
2: no Okay. Uh, if you have the right equipment, we are using the Dawn ZRX roller that's mounted on our corn planter. And we just say, you know what, the more biomass, the happier I am because these rollers system is built to handle it. Now, a little different though, when we're planting soybeans, we do not have a roller on our Case IH drill. So I don't like that to get quite as tall, although we are in a process process of looking at buying an I&J roller to use for our own purposes for that particular application and then also making it available for other farmers in the area. Sure. As far as the amount of biomass, I mean, we've had biomass readings of 12 to 14,000 pounds per acre Wow. The biomass it is thick, I mean it's really something <laughs> that would be great for grazing, but we're not set up for that program, but certainly would be a good option, I guess for those that have cattle
1: yeah, so up until now, when you were planting soybeans, how did you knock down the cover crop?
2: We basically are just driving through it. Our planter is a drill, and so okay. we plant. 15 inch rows. And so the drill's got two gangs, a front gang and a back gang. So it's just the one gang in the back that's actually planting. We actually run the front gang down just to help roll down some of the cover crop. What we find with soybeans, soybeans will tolerate more shade. They're not as sunlight dependent as what corn is. I would feel it's more of a challenge, more of a risk to try and plant into that same environment planting corn without rolling it down. Corn really needs to get that warm sunlight and direct sunlight and heat down there in order to get a good germination and good even emergence. Where soybeans, for some reason, they don't mind that shade and it doesn't really affect germination and emergence.
1: Right. So have you been interseeding some cover crops before harvesting corn or soybeans?
2: We have, we continue to build interceders and market them. We have found here in the eastern part of the United States, Southeast Pennsylvania particularly, we have struggled to make interseeding work successfully year in and year out. We think some of it has to do with too much shading, although we have tested, we have done side-by-side experiments for Penn State in the past probably five years and we're finding there are certain species that will tolerate shade. Typically, we were planting an annual ryegrass, crimson clover, Vetch mix. We've actually had some radish in there too, and we struggled to keep it alive till fall. We could get it to emerge. It looked good, but then on through August, it seemed like we would lose the cover. We think it had to do with shading. Two years ago, we did an experiment using orchard grass instead of the annual ryegrass, and we had a lot better success with that. The other thing that we have experimented now for two years was 60-inch corn, trying to, what we're doing there is wanting to get less shading into the cover crop, more sunlight, and that works, but we have sacrificed corn yields. We cannot quite justify a 20 or 25 bushel yield hit on corn. For those that are wanting to plant interseed, get a grass crop or something going for fall forage or for grazing, that could be a very viable option for them. But like I said, we're not in the grazing program. This year, we did a Penn State trial here on our farm with 60-inch corn versus 30-inch corn with and without cover. And we were really dry this summer, and we saw as much as a 50 to 75 bushel hit. Wow. Where we had the cover. Okay. It's not a good sales for cover crop, interseeded cover crop, <laughs> but we think that cover crop was robbing some additional moisture from the corn that really hit it hard. Right.
0: We'll come right back to Frank and Jim Hershey, but I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, the Mosaic Company, for supporting our No Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sestera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SesteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Jim Hershey, here is Frank with a little known no-till farmer fact. What do you have for us today, Frank?
3: Well, Julia, cover crops are no quick fix for poor soils. That's what Dale Much told our National No-Tillage Conference attendees in 2010, He says cover crops can help solve most soil problems and improve water quality. But the Michigan State University cover crop specialist cautions that they are a long-term investment and not a quick fix. He says cover crops continue to grow in popularity among no-tillers because they protect the soil after harvest, suppress weeds, and enhance fertility. But, he says, each farming system is different. The success of cover crops is dependent on the year, the weather, as they need moisture and light to work.
0: Let's get back to Frank and Jim Hershey as they talk about grazing and residue management.
1: Well, you talked about the soil structure and drainage and soil health. You seem to be really enthusiastic about this. What are you doing other than cover crops and no-till?
2: We're actually doing a soil benchmark study with the PASA group to mm-hmm. try and see in different management practices how it affects the organic matter, water infiltration, carbon, all those to, I guess, help us better understand is what we're doing actually benefiting the soil? Mm -hmm. So we've done it in soil that has not had cover crops or hasn't had a long history of it. I don't know where we're going to go with it. I mean, this is now this year, uh, this fall yet. Actually, they're coming tomorrow to pull samples and do a water infiltration test again. One thing we struggle with is the organic matter here. And we have not seen this significant increase in organic matter with these programs like we would like to. The other thing that we've been talking about is potentially maybe doing some grazing in our farm operation here just to try and get more value out of our soil. It'll build up our soil and just help us be more sustainable, I guess, because Mm -hmm. grass-fed beef right now is really Them in a hot topic right now. And so so we are giving consideration to do that in order to try and help build up our soils. We're also going to be putting in about fourteen acres of crep ground this coming spring and that is gonna be like planting between three thousand to thirty five hundred trees. Again, what we're doing there is we're trying to protect the streams that go through our farm. All this to help in our effort to help support cleaning up the bay.
1: Sure. Right. One of the articles we did on you was way back in 2011. And at that time, you were saying that one of the biggest management challenges with no till that you were working on was residue management. Mm -hmm. I take it that starts with the combine?
2: Yes, it does start with the combine. I think back then, I was not probably planting quite as diverse cover crop as what I am now. And so I think as I enhanced the cover crop and started Started building up soil biology. I've got a lot better in nutrient recycling, and also helps to break down the residue. Sure. I may have still had a vertical till that I used as a way to, what I called manage my residue. Thought I had to go in and mix it up with the soil some. Well, since that time, it's been gone. I haven't used any kind of vertical till. I think just by planting cover crops, getting something green established on there early, I think that helps manage residue. You're giving the soil microbes some food, nutrients that they can work. Can help break down residue.
1: Let's talk about no till corn. What's your fertilizer program? When do you put it on? What do you try to put on? How often do you soil test?
2: So I guess it starts in the fall before. One of the things that we just started doing this year was drag lining. We have a hog finishing unit. We generate well over a million and a half gallons of manure a year. And we tried manure injection, but this year we started drag lining and we actually really liked that because It seemed like, I don't know, I think by spreading it through the air, you lose some. It was a dribble bar, they called it, where Mm -hmm. we were just dribbling it onto the ground and we weren't disturbing the soil. So it starts with that and that there, those rates are, I guess, dictated by our friendly CAFO program or requirements that we have to adhere to. And that's basically all phosphorus-based. So we're putting on anywhere from 3,000 gallon on up to 9,000 gallon of liquid hog manure in the fall. In the spring, what didn't get covered in the fall will get covered in the spring. Then we will add additional potash as needed. We do have to put some additional potash on that we spread on in the spring ahead of planting. And then with the planter, we typically will use five gallon of a 621 6 starter pop-up fertilizer in furrow and then we'll put as much as 50 pounds of UAN down also with the planter and that is dribbled on behind the closing wheel of the planter. That basically is our fertilization program with the exception Then we will come in and do a side dress a nitrogen 2802. We inject it. We felt that we had gotten advantage out of injection versus dribbling it on. we got a 12-row toolbar that we put it on with a disc holter in between the rows.
1: Use any micronutrients?
2: We do not. We do not. We have already, but we haven't for years. Yeah.
1: A year ago, I was in Ohio and I visited a no-tiller that had a dairy operation and they were putting on dairy manure in the spring, but they were using their drag line as a way to crimp the cover crop.
2: okay (laughs) well i haven't tried that yet
1: they were making it work it was easy you look at the field and you could see a corner that they didn't get to and it made a big difference
2: i wonder if it kept it down or if it was just for a short period of time that it laid it over how tall would the cover crop been then when they were doing that
1: well, I was there in early June, so they had probably done it oh, a month okay. month earlier, so I don't know. But they'd been doing it for two or three years, so it must be working for them.
2: Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, you're making good use of your resources there. Right,
1: right. We talked a little here, but you seem to really be big on research and getting plots out and everything.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: how important side is that side. side by side?
2: Yep, side by sides and because if you do everything the same, you don't know if you're hurting yourself or sure. helping yourself. We do nitrogen tests uh, side by side like split application of nitrogen versus putting it all on at one time. This coming year actually we did it in a small scale. This past year where we did a side by side of cover crop versus no cover crop and now this coming year we're cooperating with Penn State again on a little bit different. It's going to be three different practices. The one is no cover crop and there's going to be one that's cover crop and terminating it early which six eight inches or something in the spring and then the next one will be like extended. Of cover crop biomass like six, eight foot rye. And we're going to do this in the same field, multiple replications, just see which one wins. And it's going to be a three-year program. So we're going to do it for three years because obviously weather conditions and everything can affect one year's results. So I'm hoping that what I like with extensive cover crop planting green is going to be the winner, but maybe it won't be. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, I feel there's big value. And you don't have to do in cooperation with any university or anything, but you can skip a pass of planting cover crop or adjust your corn planting population. Or There's so much. We've been doing this for probably the past five, it might be seven years now, where we do our own side by side, or cooperate with Penn State or Cornell or somebody on something.
1: You got a minimum acreage you like to do in a side by side?
2: No, it just depends a little bit on how the field's laid out, I guess. Right. I like to do multiple replications, like yeah. three or four replications in the field if you sure. have the room to do it. But it all takes time, and you wonder sometimes why you do it. But it's fun. Then in the winter time to sit down and put all the information together and see what we can learn from it.
1: Right. Well, it's funny, too, because there'll be some guys that don't do much research, but then something happened and a nozzle plugged up or they <laughs> ran out of seed, and all of a sudden they learned something,
2: <laughs>
1: learn from yep. their mistake.
2: Learn the hard way, they say.
1: Yeah. Have you researched fungicides?
2: Yes, we have researched fungicide. I have mixed thoughts about what fungicide does to our biology, but I still have done it this past year again. We did a side-by-side fungicide on corn at like V5 to V7. Mostly because we don't have the equipment to go in at tassel. We saw a 20 bushel yield advantage where we did fungicide. Which it was a field that was trying to change our crop rotation a bit, and so it was corn after corn. I think that there is an advantage to fungicide when you're going into multiple years of corn soybeans were actually we have done some fungicide years back on soybeans and we could not get enough of yield to pay for the product but after this year with the corn research that we did we're going to do a soybean side by side next year Let's see is this still the case or did something change yeah.
1: Well, even if you would prefer not to use fungicides when you're getting a 20 bushel per acre yield boost, you got to think about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know. A lot of it's about economics, too. But I still don't like the thought of being hard on our biological activity either, population. Right.
1: So you've been uh, really active in the Pennsylvania No Till Alliance. Tell us a little about that group.
2: Well, the group's been together now for 17 years now, maybe. The organization has grown, I wouldn't say in membership numbers, but we have moved. We typically, our funding was all pretty much focused on Southeast Pennsylvania and specifically the Chesapeake Bay watershed. But in just the last two years, we've been able to expand to the whole state of Pennsylvania away. Western Pennsylvania out of the Chesapeake Bay watershed, and we've had. Even with the challenges of COVID this summer, we were able to have two very successful field days. Uh, one was held at Mark Rohrbach, which is in more northern PA, and then we did one at Ryan Graham out in western PA. We had an outstanding group of farmers show up for that event, and I think some was, you know, farmers just needed to get out and <laughs> pee with other farmers. <laughs> right. But we had brought in some speakers that we feel that we have a momentum going here in the state that farmers really want to hear from farmers, okay, and that's I feel what we have to offer. Where we are planning two winter events, we were going to be holding them in December next month, but we decided to postpone now to February or March to just give everything a little bit more time here to right. calm down. But we're probably. Going to be holding them on a farm somewhere rather than going to a restaurant or a commercial establishment.
1: Find a big machine um, shed.
2: Yep yep and we feel that that there will take a little bit of the limelight off of the large group gatherings. But uh, we have gotten a lot of support, a lot of support from industry folk in Pennsylvania. and then I would just highlight Stroudwater research. We've joined forces with them now about four or five years ago, and they've been a great funding source for us, and their main focus, Stroud's main focus is on on streams and waterways and things like that and they came to us and said you know what we think that the no Alliance has a lot of experience with what happens in the field and with soil why can't we join forces so it's been nothing but positive for them and for us to be working together and we really been able to enhance our effectiveness by working along with Straub. Uh right. well, 13-member board, and we're all farmers. We all have a passion for soil health and water quality. Yeah.
1: My son and myself were at your field day three or four years yeah. ago at your place. You had a big mm-hmm. tent up, you had lots of people, you had some cover crop plots out front, and you had a couple pieces of equipment, including the rollers, and that was a yep. really neat time. So in the okay. Chesapeake Bay, are we getting it done with no-till and cover crops?
2: The bay quality is improving, but they're telling us that it's not at a rapid enough pace and that we will not meet the numbers that they need by 2025. That's for some reason the magic year. And I don't know what the next steps will be, but there continues to be a lot of money coming available for BMPs, new waterway installations, construction. We just did one this fall, $40,000 project on one of our farms. And in the spring, we're going to be doing another one that's in the 30 dollars to $35,000 range. We're putting in more terraces, more waterways, more tile drainage, and all this basically is being funded by groups that are trying to make an attempt to do their part to continue sure. to meet the obligations. And just like this manure, that I was talking about how we are a CAFO here because all the broiler chickens and the hog finishing unit we have, and a lot of it's phosphorus based applications now. And so if we can get our farmers together to really take it seriously, I think that's probably the biggest hurdle right now because there's a lot of large dairies in Pennsylvania and they've got more manure than what they have land base, And so I think that's something that's probably being overlooked. Right, right. I think guys are doing better with cover crops and trying to manage that part, but I think they have to do a better job at managing manure.
1: Years and years ago, I was an editor of the Beef, Cattle, and Hog magazine in Chicago, and I went out to Greeley, Colorado to the big Bonfort feedlot. They had a feedlot with 100,000 cattle capacity in it. <laughs> and one of the rules they had is they bought corn silage from every farmer in the area. But for every truckload of uh, corn silage you brought in, you had to promise to take a load of manure
2: sometime manure. during the
1: next six months just to get uh-huh. rid of it. <laughs>
2: 100,000 head would generate a lot of manure. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: Years ago, I talked to a guy here in the Midwest and he said, once we start no-tilling, we won't need terraces anymore. So tell me a little Mm. about the terrace project you got with no-till.
2: Yeah, there's only so much water can infiltrate the soil. I don't Uh care how good a soil you have built up there, but if you get a heavy rain event, there is going to be some runoff. And when these plans are put together, when the conservation district puts plans together, they won't just put in tile drainage or they just won't put in waterways it has to be in conjunction with another practice. And typically another practice is either if you're not no-tilling, that can be a practice, If you're not cover cropping, that can be a practice, which I'm already doing that. So in order to be able to fund the project, they felt that was the only option. But I need to say that every acre has cover crop growing on it today here in our farm. It was an excellent fall for getting cover crops started, but I think no-till is a good step in that right direction, but no-till will not solve all your problems with water runoff.
1: You're pretty diversified. You got corn and soybeans and wheat. You were growing barley at one time, right?
2: Yeah. That came out of our program just because there doesn't seem to be a good market here in our area for barley.
1: Now, there's some no-tillers in northern Ohio that got back into barley because there were some distilleries that were looking for Mm -hmm. barley. But you also, I remember (laughs) being there, going by the broiler house, and you got a party barn, and you had a big solar uh, (laughs) panel complex.
2: Yeah. So we're going on two years with the solar. It's doing the job. We're not getting quite the tax credit that we anticipated, but uh we've got the wedding venue here. The barn has, it's been a difficult year for us with the whole COVID thing. Yeah. There's a lot of um, events got rescheduled till next year or postponed to next year. Right. Uh, Yeah, diversification with the broilers, the hogs, the crops, and the wedding barn has really been good. It's been good. Need to uh, try and weather the storms of life sometimes, too. Right. Right,
1: well, I grew up on a dairy farm forty miles north of Detroit. It's all houses now, but it was in since eighteen fifty three so it was a centennial farm
2: mm. and
1: there's an old barn there it's a hundred feet long dairy barn bank on one side up in the lofts and Mm -hmm. 60 feet tall and nobody's using it anymore it's still in pretty good shape but it needs some work but anyway about six months or so ago somebody bought it and they're going to turn it into a party barn
2: (laughs) (laughs) so how long ago did it leave the family
1: maybe the early 90s
2: okay Yeah, that doesn't really surprise me. There just seems to be, even in our own county, there continues to be more and more people that are revitalizing these old bank barns and make them into a wedding event.
1: Right, right. So, uh, in the next couple of years, what new project you got going or what do you want to research you haven't been doing
2: so I'm going to do more research with this dragline concept, like side-to-side, side, and I want to listen and learn more about grazing. mm uh-huh. Like I said earlier, I think there's value in it, both economically and from soil sustainability, farm sustainability aspect too. regenerative ag has really gotten a lot of wind behind its sail right now. Right. And I think something that I need to learn more about, potentially maybe try some of it here on a small scale. Right.
1: Hey, I'm going to let you go. This was really great. I appreciate you yeah. doing this.
2: Well, Tang, it's always good chatting with you, Frank. Appreciate what you're doing there.
1: All right, take care. All right.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the No Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at no-tillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry.
3: This one, Julia, comes from a reader who asks how they can get more earthworms to inhabit their no tilled soils. The answer comes from Eileen Kovetko at Purdue University who says one of the ways to encourage more earthworms is by planting cover crops, adding manure and compost, reducing the amount of tillage and the disturbance of the soil while keeping the soil covered with a layer of mulch most of the year. The ideal living conditions for an earthworm require an environment of lots of crop residue and a calcium-rich soil. Earthworms like shaded conditions such as provided by cover crops. They can tolerate a range of temperatures from freezing to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And they live in almost all soil types except very coarse soils such as sands and very acidic soils.
0: Thanks to Frank Lessiter and Jim Hershey for today's discussion, and thanks to our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So, please email me your questions at listener mail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lessiter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlock. Thank you for listening.